You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. It would debate the inerrancy of God's Word. It would be selective in what commandments in the Word they would subscribe to. The story of the Church's alliance with the world and her subsequent failure is a matter of recorded history. The mingling of the world and the Church became the devil's headquarters, and all kinds of false practices were accepted. Perhaps one of the most heartbreaking things we as believers can endure is to witness a congregation succumb to compromise. Unfortunately, even the most passionate of churches can fall victim to such a reality. But what exactly causes it? As Pastor Mike will teach you in his message today, one of the most common culprits is none other than worldly influence. In his study, you'll learn how the acceptance of man's tradition, vain philosophy, and extra-biblical doctrine only serves to destroy. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of Revelation chapter 2 as he continues his message, Pergamos, the Compromising Church. I remember what you said, you They tolerated them when they should have tried them. I mean, all of this stuff that was creeping into the church was going on right under their noses. But they didn't do anything about it. They allowed this to go on. Now, what was the danger in all of this? Well, the result, of course, would have been minimizing sin, reducing the church's spirituality to a subnormal state. Remember, uh, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians in chapter 5 and verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And in the scripture, leaven always represents sin. If we tolerate sin, even a little sin, you know, it has a, a way of compounding and snowballing and it has that kind of a domino effect until it, it permeates the whole lump, the whole uh, church. Now, I guess we ought to talk some about who was this fellow that's named here, Balaam. And what sin does he represent? Well, his history is actually recorded for us in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers over a period of four chapters. uh, That would be Numbers chapter 22 through 25. Let me just summarize for you those things that are recorded of him there. Balaam was someone who had the gift of prophecy. He had God's word in his mouth. But his heart was possessed with a satanic covetousness for the honors and rewards of this world. You know, he he was probably someone 
who was, yes, endowed by God, may have started off well and good, but somehow, some way, during some period of time, he turned and he began to make merchandise of the gifts that God had given him. He began to make merchandise of the gospel, prostituting it for gain. Now, some further background. Notice also in our cast of characters, we're introduced to this fellow whose name was Balak, there in verse 14. Now, this is a reference to King Balak of Moab. He was the king of the Moabites. And he offered Balaam a sizable fee to curse Israel, who was about to cross over the Jordan into his land. And Balak feared Israel. And listen, he had every right to fear Israel. Remember, God was going before his people Israel uh, to conquer and defeat all of the enemies there in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised them. So he was going before them, and every enemy that they came up against in conquering that land was defeated by Israel, by the hand of the Lord. So he had some legitimate reasons to be concerned uh, about. Now, Balaam refused the king's offer to help defeat Israel, but later caved in, in spite of God's warnings. So Balaam conceived an evil scheme to produce their downfall. When he realized he could not curse them, he proposed to corrupt them. Now this was the counsel that he offered the king. Hey listen king, send down your young virgin Moabite girls to seduce the Israeli men and then invite them to participate in moral acts of worship. You see, they would enter into these immoral acts of worship in the way that they worshiped their gods. And they had these images that they brought along with them that depicted these sexual activities, uh, the different forms of sexual activities, the different positions of sexual activities that they used in their worship of these false gods. It, it, you know, the truth of the matter is this is the first form of pornography. And they were defeated through this unholy alliance. They agreed. They embraced these women as they came down to them and enticed them to participate uh, in these acts. And so thus they were defeated through this unholy alliance, this unequal yoke. You see, Balaam knew that God would shut them down because simply that is the effect that sin has on a person's life. He couldn't curse them, so he counseled King Balak to, again, as I just mentioned, the women sent down and seduced and tempted these young men. Uh, they succumbed to that temptation. They entered into these illicit, immoral acts, and they begin to worship these false gods, thus bringing the judgment of God upon them. And listen, and the devil was behind all of this. When the devil, let's bring this down to personal terms. When the devil failed, think about this, going back to the history of the church, when the devil failed to wipe out the church, for example, the church of Smyrna, which represented the second and third centuries, which was also known as the persecuted church, during which time six million Christians were martyred for their faith their faith in Jesus Christ. So when the devil failed to wipe out the church through murder, 
he resorted to mixture. And how did he go about that? He joined the church. So it was this Balanism, and it was the evil principle that came into the church at Pergamos. You know, Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of my favorite uh, writers, and interestingly enough, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, points out that the very word Pergamos has in it the same root from which we get our English words for bigamy and polygamy. So listen, Pergamos signifies a mixed marriage in the most objectionable sense of the word. It is the marriage of Christ's church with the world. And remember, uh, Jesus warned us about this very thing. In John's Gospel in chapter 17, where we have recorded in that section of that chapter, in that Gospel, we have the record of Christ's praying for the church. And one of the chief features of the prayer that he prayed, he prayed unto the Father, and he says, Father, keep them from the world's influence. So Pergamos was the indulgent church. They were popular with the world, and they practiced no separation. Now, how did this come to be? Well, I guess it didn't happen overnight. Uh, they started off well, but it happened gradually. Paganism gradually uh, crept into this church. You know, one writer wrote, and I'd like to pass it along to you, and I quote, the influence of paganism on the church increased over the years, step by step. The church began to shroud itself in mystery and ritualism that had a strong resemblance to Babylonian mysticism. The Chaldean Tao, which was the elevation of a large T on the end of a pole. It was changed to the sign of a cross. The rosary of pagan origin was introduced. Celibacy of priests and nuns, which has no scriptural verification, but finds a counterpart in the vestal virgins of paganism, was conceived. The following is a partial list, and I want to emphasize partial. It was a partial list of unscriptural changes that was introduced during this age. Gradually, these changes became more prominent than the original teachings of Christianity. So these are just some of those practices that I selected that took place and that were introduced between the period of A.D. 300 and A.D. 600. First of all, prayers for the dead, making the sign of the cross, the worship of saints and angels. Uh, mass was first in instituted. The worship of Mary begun. Priests began dressing differently than laymen. Extreme unction, and that would have been like sort of uh, the giving of the last rites. The doctrine of purgatory introduced. Worship services conducted in Latin. Prayers directed to Mary. So, just to name a few. So, from A.D. 312 onward, the church became more Roman and less Christian in its practices. And as the church became married to the world and governmental authority, and it was elevated to a place of acceptance and it declined its spiritual blessings and power. And that's always the effect that those things have upon the church. And that's exactly the way that paganism had crept into it. Now, an, uh, another example of this mixed marriage 
is today's, and I want you to think about it, this is something that is even going on presently, the ecumenical church with its world council, that is the world council of churches, is an ugly, ungodly monstrosity. And it is a poor representation of the true church of Jesus Christ. You know, interestingly enough, and we'll get to this in one of our future uh, studies, when we move into Revelation chapter 17, we're introduced to what is known as Mystery Babylon the Great, which is this ecumenical religious system and church that exists in the last days. And even through the seven years of uh, tribulation. And there we are told that the nations had drunk of her wine and it had an intoxicating effect upon it. It became a substitute for the real thing. And so that ecumenical uh, church system will exist in the last days. But praise God when Jesus comes, he'll put an end to all of that. But Satan is behind that. And this organization, under Satan's leadership, would make null and void the sacrificial death of Jesus as man's only hope of salvation. That organization that exists today. It would debate the inerrancy of God's word. It would be selective in what commandments in the word they would subscribe to. The story of the church's alliance with the world and her subsequent failure is a matter of recorded history. The mingling of the world and the church became the devil's headquarters, and all kinds of false practices were accepted. Notice uh, one of those practices are mentioned there in verse uh, 15. That is the Nicolaitans, or the Nicolaitism. And uh, this is not the first time that we were introduced to this. Remember in the uh, letter to the first church in Ephesus, in chapter 2, in verse uh, 16. Our direction is towards them. And basically, we established that the Nicolaitans were those who had uh, established a clergy over laymen. And in both cases, there in the letter to Ephesus, as well as the letter to uh, Pergamos, Jesus says, I hate these things. Now, why does he hate those things? Because it, it makes one person closer to God than another. And thus, God hates those things, that teaching. And then finally, notice God's counsel. Verse 16, let's pick up there. He says, repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So, it is sinful to tolerate Balaanism, even though we may not practice it, but we mustn't allow it to creep into the, the church. Listen, we're either for Christ or against it. We need to make sure that those kinds of false teachings aren't being spread throughout the various churches uh, that we attend. And if we will not repent, if we will not take up this occupation, his holy sword becomes their executioner, even as Balaam was slain with the sword. In Numbers chapter 31 and verse 8, so will all those who reject Jesus Christ, who embrace these false teachings. He said, notice there, I will come unto thee and will fight against them. He will gather the wheat and burn the tares, as he puts it himself. 
but he calls upon his own to accept his principle of separation, to practice separation, either moral or religious error, not to compromise. And then finally, and this brings us to our fifth and our final point, and that is three wonderful promises. And those three wonderful promises are recorded for us in verse 17. So let's read that final verse of Scripture that's a part of our text this morning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Okay, so let's break these promises down for you from verse 17. The first of which is, notice Jesus promises that we shall partake of the hidden manna. Now, what is Jesus referring to here? Well, it is Jesus who is the living bread who came down from heaven. In John's Gospel, in chapter 6, in verse 51, Jesus refers to himself in this way. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So Jesus is promising us himself, right? The, that fellowship, having that kind of intimacy with him. So it is upon him, the separated heart, the people of God feed. And listen, as we do, we will be filled to the full. We will be absolutely satisfied. Because apart from Jesus Christ, we don't need anything. So that's the first promise. The second promise has to do with our ruling together with Jesus, ruling and reigning with Christ when we come back with him the second time to establish his kingdom upon the earth. Notice he says then, also there in verse 17, the overcomer will receive a white stone. Now what's this white stone? And what does that represent? Well, this would be a figure that would have been surely familiar to those who lived there in Pergamos. The white stone, or was rather, could be described as a ballot. You see, before the court, back then, culturally, of the Aragopagus, a criminal would stand before, their case would be tried, they would stand before a judge. And uh, if that case was involved, uh, had to do with the death penalty, after trying, after hearing the case, the judges would stand and they would take these stones and they would walk by an urn and they would drop one stone into the urn. And the black represented how that they would condemn them, how that the, the people that were being judged were guilty. Whereas if they took a white stone and placed it within the urn, that would mean that they were acquitted or that they were uh, innocent. So the word for stone becomes the common word for ballot. So what is Jesus promising the believers here? Well, the overcomer thus receives from the Lord the authority to judge in his name. And there are many verses of Scripture that tell us exactly that. In 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, in verse 2, for example, the Bible tells us that the saints shall judge the world. 
So, when again, when Christ comes back to establish his kingdom upon the earth, we'll rule and reign together uh, with him. And then the final promise, notice, let's go back to verse 17, a new secret name. So more than the delegated authority of the Lord, which is pretty cool, is the intimacy that is to be found in the name that is to be written upon the stone. That is a new name that is going to be given to me, to you, by God himself. And the secret name speaks of that deep fellowship that is indicated by that new name. For example, I'm called Pastor Mike by most people in our congregation. My given name is Michael or Mike, and it is used by my close friends. You know, those who are more friendly with, you know, they, they don't call me Pastor. I, and it's okay, by the way, to call me Mike. You don't have to call me Pastor Mike, but whatever you like. I'm good either way. But my very close friends, those that I've known for years, they don't refer to me as Pastor. They just refer to me as uh, Mike. Uh, my children call me Daddy. And in the most intimate of all human relationships, there's a place for those kinds of endearing names, which we don't broadcast in public. You know, pet names, like, for example, that we have for our spouse or for our children. So the idea here of this new name represents the kind of intimacy and fellowship that we will have with the Lord in that day. To the uh, promise to the overcoming believer by the Lord. Again, indicating that closeness. You know, it, it sort of conjures up a picture of uh, just the Lord uh, falling all over me and, and me all over uh, him. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like the bridegroom, who is Christ, the way that he will speak to his bride, who is the church. He will have a tender name for her. For you that shall not be known even to the angels. Only God knows that name. So this is, so let me ask you this question as we close out. Is this our present experience? That closeness, that intimacy, where God is all over us and we all over him. What's the key? Well, simply practicing separation. Gang, great shall be our reward. You know, in the final chapter, here in this book of Revelation, chapter 22 and verse 12, Jesus tells us there, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. To give to everyone according to his work. Listen, gang, we have a bright future ahead of us with all of these wonderful rewards. It does pay to know and serve God. We're not giving up anything that God doesn't return to us a thousandfold. So the Lord bless you as you continue to walk with Him. Practice that separation. Practice holiness. And you can be sure that God will bless you. In my Father's house There's a place for me In my Father's house Where I long that's all we have time for on this edition of In My Father's House. Did you know that you can listen to Pastor Mike's teachings on your favorite podcast app? Just search for In My Father's House with Mike Venizio and be sure to subscribe. And let us know you're a listener in the comments. 
We'd love for you to join us for worship this Sunday at Harvest Christian Fellowship, too. Check harvestnyc.org for service times. You can reserve your seat by clicking on Contact and then the Register link. We're located in Midtown Manhattan, and there's easy access from Port Authority on 42nd and Penn Station on 34th. If you're not in the area, or if you're unable to attend in person, we'd still like to have you be a part of our time studying God's Word. We're live streaming our services each week, and you can connect on our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. If you'd like to catch previous Sunday messages, click on the Resources tab. You can also watch services through our Vimeo link or connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Links to all of these are available at our website. One more time, that's harvestnyc.org. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to ask you to join us in praying for all those listening to Pastor Mike's teachings. Please pray for open hearts and open ears to hear and accept truth. Thanks for praying, and thanks for joining us today. We look forward to our continuing study of Revelation next time, here on In My Father's House. There's a place for